Almighty and merciful God, it's only by your gift that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is the collect appointed for today, October the 31st, 2021. Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We uh, had a good week this week. Um, nothing extremely exciting, just kind of busy and uh, had some um, some time to get out in the woods, some time to get to the gym, some time to do a bunch of podcasts. I've got a lot going on, but that's all right because we've we've had I've had a really good week this week. It's been beautiful here. It's time for the leaves to change and everything to become beautiful for a brief moment in time until all the leaves fall to the ground, <laughs> and then we move on with life into winter. Um, hopefully, we move on with life into winter a little more. Uh, solidly than we did last year with the whole COVID thing. Um, you know, a year ago I was working for Amazon and spending all my time um, at work just, I mean, it, it was the busiest time I've ever seen at Amazon. It was crazy. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm glad not to be <laughs> doing that at the moment. And things seem a little better at least than they were. So it's Reformation Sunday in the church it's halloween and i recognize that but in the church calendar it's reformation sunday it's the celebration of the the protestant revolution the reformation um that happened beginning in 1521 when uh, martin luther a roman catholic priest goes to the uh, cathedral in wittenberg germany and tacks up 95 theses on t-h-e-s-e-s on the door of the cathedral inviting debate. And so that debate was based uh, completely in what was going on at the time in Germany, which was there was um, they were selling papal indulgences in order to spend money rebuilding or building more at the Vatican. And so papal indulgences were billed as the thing that would get you out of hell, get you out of purgatory, whatever. So so he was selling permanent get-out-of-jail-free cards. Um, you didn't ever have to cash those in. And the good news is you didn't have to repent of any sins going forward. If you paid enough money, you didn't have to do that because the Pope had already declared you clean. And Luther said, that's a bunch of nonsense. And so he begins his theses with <coughs> this. These are the first four or five. I'll read those. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. In other words, repentance it can't just be a confession. It's got more to do with what happens next after the confession. Do you no longer do those things? Do you move away from those things? For the penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, parentheses, that is true inner repentance, namely, till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Five, the Pope neither desires nor is able to remit any penalties except those imposed by his own authority or that of the canons. In other words, what he's saying is, is that, that we're giving people a false gospel 
what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor 400 years after Luther, would call cheap grace. In other words, it's, it's grace without the cross, because there's no reason for the cross if the Pope has the ability to forgive sins separate and apart from the cross. And so that was Luther's whole problem is, is that you're sending people straight to hell by what you're doing because you're giving them a false confidence that is against all truth. He ends up with the last two or three here, away then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, peace, peace, and there's no peace. Blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, cross, cross, and there's no cross. Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ their head through penalties, death, and hell, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. So Luther's concern for the souls of the people in his care who have come to believe that somehow or another the Pope has the ability to forgive sins both in the past and in the future simply because I wrote a big check. And so he sees a problem with that, and so he calls that out because it's a false gospel. And it's important that Luther call that out, but it's the same kinds of things that we see today, that is, if you make a profession of Christ at some point in your life, apparently there's no need to live for Christ, and certainly there's no need to continually repent of sin. That because you made a profession of faith and were baptized, then you're good to go. And so we're saying peace, peace to people who have been sold a false bill of goods. And it's a problem, to say the least, in the church. And and so you're unpopular if you talk about things like Luther did, where you go through tribulation, where it's difficult to follow Christ. Because we're sold this phony gospel of peace. And it's not true. And so Luther fired the shot in 1521, or 1517, sorry, 1521 was when he was uh, formally excommunicated uh, from the church four years after he wrote the theses, and then uh, later in that same year he refused to recant of his writings, and then so they, there was issued the Edict of Worms, which is Worms, W-O-R-M-S, was where the trial was held. And so the Edict of Worms from the Emperor Charles, well, it declared Luther to be an outlaw and a heretic and gave permission for anyone to kill him without consequence. So in other words, you, you can do anything you want with Luther. You can kill him if you like. Um, it, later, in 1529, is where we get the term Protestant, actually. Charles had allowed the rulers of the German states to choose whether or not to enforce the Edict of Worms, and in 1529 he removed that uh, provision that allowed them to do what conscience allowed. And so it says and then a number of pro- uh, princes and other supporters issued a protest declaring their allegiance to God, trumped their allegiance to the emperor, and they became known then as Protestants by their uh, opponents, which is typically how people get end up with certain kinds of names like Protestants, Christians, whatever. It's because ultimately that's what the um, their opponents called them, and then it became the thing by which they were known. So it's that's the backdrop for today for Reformation Sunday, just so you'll know a little bit of the history behind the Protestant church and how we got where we are. And it largely had to do with, with who forgives sins and how are sins forgiven. Is it because you wrote a big check? Is it because you purchased an indulgence? Or is it because you did what Jesus said to do, which is repent? So that's the point of that.
uh, of why we're Protestant. It's, it's not just we're saved by grace alone, uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It, there's more to it than that. There, there, it's, that was not the whole entire thing, but it is about how we're saved. Are we saved through Christ, or are we saved some other way? like indulgences, does, does the church determine whether we're saved, or does Christ ultimately determine whether we're saved? And so we, we, we act as though we want to tear down all the barriers to entry into the kingdom. We act as though we, we have control of things, and so we want to make it easy for people, but Jesus didn't do that. And we're going to look today at the uh, book of Ruth, the first chapter, the first uh, 18 or so verses, and and we're going to see something there that, that should be a principle in the church, as it's a principle in Judaism today. So here we go, Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So what we're told right up front is there's a famine in the land, the land being Israel, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. We all know about Bethlehem, Judah. That's the true city of David. That's where Jesus was born, because of the census that required every man to go to his ancestral home to register for the census. And so his ancestral home, because he was a descendant of David, was in Bethlehem. So this man, uh, whose name is Elimelech, we're going to hear that in just a second, they, when the drought and the famine hits, they leave. Elimelech and his family leave Bethlehem, and they go to Moab. And there's already an implied rebuke in that idea, because the, the one of the main things that where the people failed was when Balaam, the prophet who spoke to the donkey, said, just send our women in there and corrupt their morals, because that's the history of Moab. There's a lot to this, and we could go into great detail on it, but we don't have time today. But suffice it to say that there's multiple problems right here in this first sentence, which says there's a famine in the land, and rather than dealing with that famine and staying there with his people, Elimelech and his family leave the people, and they go to the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kiliom. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they settled there. It's They weren't commanded by God to go there. What the right thing would have been to do would have been to stay where they are and band together with your people and pray, and ask the Lord why there's a famine in the land. But Elimelech and his family abandon the people, and they go to the country of Moab instead. And then to say that they remain there is to say that they put down roots, which is exactly what God's people shouldn't have done in this time, would be to go somewhere else and put down roots, because there's difficulty where they are in the land. And so we, we tend to do that, right, though? We, we tend to think the grass is greener over there. And so Elimelech and his family leave. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And then here's an, so there's already, okay, that, that sounds like, and this is certainly the way the rabbis interpret it, as though that's God's judgment on Elimelech for leaving the people. The Jewish 
uh, rabbis, in fact, teach that Elimelech, based on his name, which is that my God is king, is what it means, that he was a leader there and then left the people, which means that the burden on him, the the responsibility that he would have had, would have been great uh, in the land. And so when he left, it was worse than just some randos leaving the land. So the Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, and these took Moabite wives. So we've got another this is wrong kind of thing, because you can see in Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the things that people have to do is put away their foreign wives. So this is when when God told the people to go to uh, through Jeremiah, when he speaks through Jeremiah for the people going to Babylon, what he says is settle there. Do the things required, buy houses, get, let your kids get married, blah, blah, blah. All the normal things of life because you're going to be there a long time. And so here, had they planned on staying there? And it's part of the reason the rabbis come up with the idea that Elimelech was a leader. And it's because he knows he can't go back. Because his sin is so great that he can't go back. So, he's, so they settle in the land here. And so they, they took Moabite wives. Again, that's a huge red flag. And the name of the one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and then both Machlon and Kilion died. Again, that they would, this would be perceived as God's judgment against these two who have married Moabite women in, in spite of God's proclamation against that very thing. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi has lost everything in this bargain. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, which sounds great, but then we hear why. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the curse, the penalty, had been removed, and now the harvests have been restored in the land. And so she goes back and, and her daughter-in-laws go with her. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So in other words, you've been good daughter-in-laws. You were good wives to my sons, and you've been good daughter-in-laws to me. And so she, she prays over them that the Lord would bless them and deal kindly with them as she dismisses them to go back to their mother's homes. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, go back home, stay there, and marry good Moabite men, and everything should be fine with you. It's my desire that God would bless you in that way. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to our people. But Naomi said, No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? In other words, I, I, I can't provide you with husbands. I'm too old. I'm not married. I'm all these things. And so she's, she's telling them, No, go on back. I can't, I can't give you husbands to replace the ones they had. <clears throat> And they said to her, no, uh, no, I'm sorry, I missed miss something there. She says, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait then until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. 
And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's this this clinging, that word there is the same thing that is used when in Genesis 2, when a man shall cling to his wife. That's the word that's used here with clinging. In, in other words, she is, she is casting her lot completely with her. She has, they become one flesh in many ways, is what she's saying here. Is that I, it, because Ruth goes on to say, after Naomi tries to discourage her again, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So, so what she's saying, until death do us part. You hear that? It's like a marriage vow that she's making here with her mother-in-law. She is uh, rejecting not only her people, not only her family, but also her God or gods, as it were, to go with Naomi. She's, she's accepting everything, which is amazing, right? Because they came there because there was a drought. So obviously the, the God of Moab was, was providing for his people, while the God of, the, of Israel was not providing for his people. And that's the only reason she even comes into contact with these people, because there's famine in her land. But she could have, ta- she could have taken the idea of, well, why would I go your God? Your God doesn't seem able to provide for his people or willing to provide for his people. So is your God real or not? I mean, you had to come here to get food, right, and to survive. And, and then you stayed here because you must have liked it well enough. Um, and, and while you're God doesn't seem to protect, well, at least the men, that, but I want to make your God my God. Something in the way that, that she has been treated, maybe by, by Naomi and the family, has convinced her that there's something superior in the culture in Israel to the culture in Moab. And we don't know what that is, but we, we see it ultimately the, in, the, in the hospitality and the loving concern and care. Both Naomi and ultimately Boaz, the man who will become her husband, show her. There's a kindness, a hesed in the way that these people love that would be different from the people of Moab. There's a different quality of love among these people. And so she makes a vow and an oath, and it sounds very much like a marriage vow, before, but uh, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's a significant vow that she has made here. And then when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. That vow actually sounds very much like a vow Jonathan makes to David later. And that is when Jonathan, when David has said, your father's trying to kill me, and Jonathan says, oh, no, there's no way in the world my father would try and kill you. Look at all you've done for him. And David said, no, 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 this is the way it is. And so Jonathan makes a vow to let David know the state of affairs uh, vis-a-vis Saul and David. And so then he concludes that vow with, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. It's exactly the same language, this may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. Listen to Ruth, may the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything, 
but death parts me from you. And so it's this form of this vow that's made that, that secures the vow and says, no, I mean this with my whole heart. I'm willing to accept whatever punishment would be meted out upon you if I fail to keep up my end of the bargain. And so Ruth makes that very vow to um, Naomi that, that later Jonathan, the son of Saul, the first king of Israel, will make to David, who is actually with the great-grandson of this woman Ruth, ultimately. There's a powerful thing in in this idea of declaring our intentions and then following through on those intentions and then being quick and willing to repent whenever we fail to do these things. This the pattern here where Naomi pushes back against her daughters-in-law who are from Moab in their desire to come with her back to the land of Israel, that that pattern has become the pattern that rabbis take when um, somebody wants to convert to Judaism. They're first going to tell them the difficulties of coming to Judaism. Now, you know, you stay where you are. Don't worry about it, because all you got to do to participate in the life of the world to come is keep these seven laws that they believe were given to Noah, and those are called the Noahide laws, N-O-A-H-I-D-E. Keep those Noahide laws, and you're in covenant with God sufficient to get you into the world to come. You're good. Just stay where you are. And then they persist, and they say, you know, the thing is right now, see, the problem is you've got to keep seven things now, but if you come in and become Jewish, you're responsible for 613 different commandments. You're responsible for knowing a lot more, and not only knowing, but doing. And so that's the second objection. And finally, it's it's you're going to be hated and rejected all over the world. There's a lot of suffering in being a Jew. And so that's the pattern that they take, and they take it from this encounter with uh, Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And it's not just in Judaism where you see that, because if you want to see it in a different place in the New Testament, then, well, go to either Matthew's Gospel, the 8th chapter, or in Luke's Gospel, in the ninth chapter, and here's what you'll read. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, count the cost. It's, it, it's not an, uh, an invitation to the easy life. It's not an invitation to a peaceful life and a, and a, a blessed and uh, fulfilled, wealthy kind of life. That's not what you're offering here. And then another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So he's saying, you know, no, if you're going to follow me, then, then leave everything else behind, even the burial of your father. You've got to come and, and answer this today. The opportunity won't be there tomorrow. And so Jesus is saying, count the cost of doing this. It's going to mean that you've got to turn your back on what's familiar to you, just like the disciples had done, the ones who said yes when he called them. And so he wants them to count the cost, and he's telling his disciples constantly that they need to count the cost. They need to understand the cost that he's going to pay the cross and death. But saying that's the path to resurrection. And then he, well, does it. 
But but we need to get better at that because we, we've stopped telling people to count the cost if we ever did. Because, I mean, we can do turn or burn, right? I mean, that's the, co- the cost of not following Jesus is turn or burn, right? So, so if, you, if you follow Jesus, then, the, then, then, then you're good. If you don't, however, you've chosen your own demise. And so the, that's, that's one message. And then the other message is live your best life now. Have everything you actually desire. Think and grow rich. Believe and grow rich. Whatever. Um, is there suffering in this? No, we don't prepare people for suffering. In fact, what we do is we, we make them vulnerable to the idea that, that if there is suffering in your life, then it's probably because of sin. Because anything outside of you know blessedness is obviously the result of some sort of sin in your life because apparently Jesus promised that that you wouldn't have any difficulties in your life and so we've not prepared people for actually converting and and so Jesus sets those obstacles in in place in this Mark gospel lesson we have for today Mark 12:28 to 34 one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one heard them, sorry, disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandments are the most important of all. Which commandment is the most important, sorry. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's um, Deuteronomy 6, 4. That's what's called the Shema. It's the great cry of Judaism. It's the great um, thing that, that set it apart from other religions at the time was the Lord is one. There's one God, period, end of sentence. And it's the thing that, that causes people to question Christianity because they, they come to the idea that we have three gods, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those are somehow separate and distinct from one another. Um, and they are as persons, but they are one. And that's the, the great stumbling block to many is, is that, that three can be one, <laughs> and one can be three without violating either of those two principles. And so the, his, he says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. I mean, it's just, he's just quoting Scripture. But then he goes on to say the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So he links those two things together, though. It, it's, the, it's second, but it's also tied to. So there, why would that be? What does that mean? That the second is like unto it. And what it means is, is this. It's, it's what are you created in the image of? God. So that in loving God, then loving your neighbor who's also created in the image of God, it, it's all one thing. Loving God and loving your neighbor is actually one thing in the same way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one thing. So that's the way we need to see and hear Jesus' response here. And, and the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. That's nice to know. You're right, Rabbi. <clears throat> You've truly said that he is one and that there's no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, the understanding, and the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offering and sacrifices. In other words, all the other stuff you do are religious observances. Those are secondary things, not primary things. The primary things are very simple. Love the Lord your God with all your understanding and all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the primary things. Everything else, literally, is secondary. But then you've got to figure out what does it mean to love. So, And who's my neighbor? That's the reason somebody says, who's my neighbor? 
Because I got to know, because I got to love them. In order to fulfill that commandment, I have to know who my neighbor is. Jesus is basically, when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he says, it's anybody that needs your help. Anybody that needs you to be neighborly to them is what is who your neighbor is. And so when this guy responds, Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus looks at this guy, and he says, you know, for, for one of them, <laughs> you're, you're astute. There's a lot of wisdom in what you said. You understand some things. You're not far from the kingdom of God, which would be an odd thing for a Jewish scribe to hear. What do you mean I'm not far? I'm right there. I'm in the kingdom of God. But, but what, what gets him into the kingdom is not recognizing that theological truth. It's recognizing another theological truth, and that is Jesus is the Son of God, and that his sacrifice on the cross is my entrance into the kingdom. It's important to know what this guy says, but it's important also to recognize in that that I do that imperfectly. I fail one way or another by omission, by failing to do something, or by commission, doing the wrong thing. And so the I can fail in either of those two ways, and I'm likely to, and that's one of the tenets of Luther's uh, proclamations and preaching, was is that whatever you do, it's going to be tainted by sin because of sin indwelling in you, because he's going to make the argument that you don't have freedom of, uh, you, you don't have free will. It's going to be Luther's basic um, tenet. Is, is the will has been bound. We are so fallen that it affects everything that we do so that nothing we do is pure and holy. It's all tainted by sin. And it's not to discourage people from doing anything because ultimately what he says is sin boldly but love God more. In other words, in every choice you have to make, there's, a, there's something sinful about what you choose, why you choose it, and what you do and how you do it. However... Choose the best course of action that you can uh, literally determine would be exactly what God would have you do, and then go forward in that, in the love of God, knowing that it's going to be imperfect, but still persevere, sin boldly. In other words, act boldly, knowing that what you do is going to be tainted by sin in some shape, form, or fashion, but love God more. Do it for the love of God. Luther's not encouraging us not to act. He's encouraging us to act with the knowledge that we're sinful humanity. And it's not to beat us down. That's not what that's about. That's not what Luther's saying at all in that. He's just saying you're human. You're in the image of God, but you're not in the same way that Jesus is, the likeness of God, the exact imprint of his nature, as the writer of Hebrews would say. So we've got to be those who act boldly, but we've got to know our own limitations, and we've got to know what it is that we are here to do and why we're here to do it. And so we need to let people know who we are. And that's the first barrier <laughs> to, to becoming a convert is to say, who are you? And, and you've got to get set aside everything else, put everything else behind you in order to follow Christ, that you have to not just make a, a, a public profession of faith and be baptized at some point. No, you have to make a public profession of faith every instant of the day. You've got to turn away from something else in order to turn to Him, and, and He's got to be the most important thing. So when we, when we act, we act out of love for Christ because He first loved us, as John says in 1 John 5. 
In the Hebrews passage today, what we've got is when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. He didn't just go into the tabernacle, he just didn't get, just go into the, into the temple. He went further than that, the true holy place, the throne room of God. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what did he do? What, what, what is the statement of the cross? It's the statement of the full obedience to the commandment to love the Lord your God with everything within you and to love your neighbor as yourself, because he goes there because that's what the Father would have him do. He goes through the suffering because that's what the Father's will was, so he does it for love of the Father. But he's doing it secondarily for love of those created in his image, us, loving his neighbor. So the cross is the ultimate statement of what it means to love your neighbor, and that's what Jesus says in um, the upper room at the Passover feast, and that is that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, and that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. He loves the Father, and so he completes the mission, goes through all the suffering, because this is what the Father would have him do, and ultimately he does it secondarily for love of you. His love for the Father is what first impelled him to the cross. Secondarily, we get the benefit of that. He says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what we formerly did that are called dead works, where they're just done for uh, other human beings. Now, now that we have been raised with Christ, then we do these things ultimately because of our love of Him and the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondarily now, we do those things for one another. That's the change in mindset that's necessary for us, that we do all things first, soli deo gloria, which is for the glory of God alone. And then the benefit accrues also. We're doing those things, and we're loving our neighbor because we're loving those in whom, those who are created in the image of God. And so we, in all that we do, we're doing these things because we love God and we love those who are created in his image. But it's, but it's our love is to be the mark, the hallmark of Christians. But we can only do so if we recognize what grace means, and that is grace that's given to those who do not deserve the mercy of the cross, do not deserve eternal life, no matter what we've done or will do. We will never deserve it in our own merits. We're only those who, who've received as a great gift from Him. And so long as we realize all of our days what a gift it is, then we'll serve Him well. But it's when we feel like somehow or another that we deserve it that everything goes awry. And so we shouldn't be giving ourselves any of that cheap grace that doesn't account for actual sin in our lives. It's the most important thing we do in our worship and in our daily lives is to keep close accounts with God that we might always know the riches of His grace.